Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, there are three extras back on the back table there, so please use those. That's what they're there for. I want you to see that this is, these are God's words and not mine, okay? These are God's words, not mine. Matthew chapter 8. We've uh, been away from Matthew for a few weeks now, so let me kind of uh, gently, hopefully gently, bring you back into the book of Matthew here. Matthew 8 really is beginning where Matthew chapter 4 left off. You you remember we spent uh, several weeks, probably months actually, in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. So, so really you have Matthew 1 through 4 is narrative. Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus preaching. And, and then again, we're coming back to a narrative section of Matthew. Matthew jumps from narrative, preaching, narrative, preaching, narrative. So the Sermon on the Mount kind of acts as a parenthesis, if you will, between chapter 4 and chapter 8. So what I want to do is... Uh, so we can gently bring us back into what Jesus is doing here. Uh, look at uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. The, the end of Matthew chapter 4. Here's, here's what's going on here, okay? Look at verse 23. Matthew four twenty-three. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, or the the, the ten cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So that ends the narrative the first narrative part of Matthew. And then when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, we find, what, what does it say? Jesus sees the crowds. What does he do? He went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And then, and then he proceeds to preach. And he preached what many have considered the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who's ever lived known as the Sermon on the Mount, because he was on the Mount. And then when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you turn over to Matthew chapter 8. Look at Matthew chapter 8, the very first verse, as soon as Jesus is done preaching, look what chapter 8 verse 1 says. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So again, we're coming into the narrative part of the book of Matthew. This, this is right after his preaching. Now, I want you to remember something here, that Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Christ, the, the anointed one, the one they, that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one we just read. Prophets mention him, the Psalms mention him, the historical books mention him. So he's showing that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah. Now, how has he done this so far? Let me remind you how Matthew's done this so far. Matthew demonstrated Jesus' legal 
qualification through several ways here. Number one, through the genealogy. The Jews love their genealogies. <laughs> and, and the genealogy in Matthew 1 is showing that Jesus has the legal qualification to be Messiah, to be king. Number two, Matthew demonstrated Jesus' legal qualification here through his prophetic qualification, through the fulfillment of prophecy by his birth. This birth was prophesied hundreds of years before he ever came. Number three, we also see that his divine qualification was met by the Father's own uh, approval. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist? God the Father spoke from heaven. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Number four, Matthew demonstrated Jesus' legal qualification through his spiritual qualification. And that, that was met, you remember, when Jesus was out in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan for those 40 days out there. But nevertheless, Jesus maintained his perfection, his sinlessness. He, was, he, he perfectly resisted Satan's temptations. And then number five, Matthew demonstrated Jesus' legal qualification through his theological qualification. And he did that when he was preaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, Matthew dramatically set forth still another qualification. Matthew's still on this, this road to prove that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the long-prophesied anointed one. And, and we see here in, in Matthew 8 and 9, we see Jesus' divine power. He's, he is powerful. There, there's a, a series of miracles that Jesus performs here in these two chapters. Matthew shows beyond doubt that Jesus is the very Son of God. He is God. He is King. And we know that because only God could perform these supernatural acts. No one else could do this. And it really is an astounding display of power. Jesus does amazing things in these two chapters that should not be overlooked. So let me just kind of do a quick flyby of, of the various miracles that Jesus does in these two chapters. Jesus, number one, cleansed a leper. We're going to look at that one today. He also healed two paralytics. He cooled a fever. And, and by the way, you, you need to understand that uh, hundreds and thousands of people were dying from fevers at this time. Okay? It, it was probably the most common thing that killed people. So Jesus takes care of the fever. He calmed the storm at sea. He cast out demons. He raised a girl from the dead. He gave sight to two blind men. And he restored speech to a man that was dumb, who, who could not speak. The demons would not let him speak. And then he healed every other kind of disease and sickness. And these are just the ones that Matthew mentions. Of course, th this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, You understand the Gospels. In fact, John himself said... The books could not hold everything that Jesus did when he was on earth. So we're just getting little snippets, if you will. We're not getting them all. Matthew 8 and 9 are particularly critical to understanding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and in this particular section here in Matthew 8, 
Matthew records, as well as chapter 9, Matthew records a series of nine miracles that were performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Nine miracles. And what we're going to do today and the next couple of weeks is we're going to, we're going to break those up into, into groups of three. I think they're meant to be taken in groups of three. That's my understanding of it anyway. And that's what we're going to do. These nine miracles are, uh, are very helpful for us to understand the life and ministry of Christ. Jesus' miracles were the supreme proof of his divinity. They were also the irrefutable uh, credentials of his kingship. When, when you look at these as a whole, you cannot walk away and say that Jesus was... That's not the Messiah. You can't do that. Matthew's purpose in recording the miracles, like Jesus' purpose in performing them, was to confirm his deity, as well as his claim to be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. You remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says that. Why did he come? He came to save his people from their sin. And so Matthew's showing that he's God, he is the Messiah, he is King, and he is the Savior of the world. And so today we're going to look at this first section here, verses 1 through 17. There's three miracles here we're going to quickly look at and see what we can learn from Jesus' ministry here. Interestingly enough, the reason I think these three are grouped together is all three of these people were the were the downtrodden. They were the outcast of their society. And Jesus purposely made a point to minister to these three outcasts. So we see a God who is loving, who is kind, who is gracious and merciful here. The first outcast that Jesus ministers here is a leper. Jesus healed a leper. Now you need to understand something about leprosy to understand what Jesus is doing here. Leprosy was, was a very nasty disease that, uh, well, you, you, you were basically considered dead. If you had leprosy, you were, you were definitely an outcast. You were not allowed to live amongst the people. You were basically had to go live outside the, the city. You, you had the, their leper colony. You had to go and live in that. And if you saw anybody who was healthy, you had to yell out, Unclean! Unclean! weren't supposed to be amongst the so-called healthy people, the normal people of society. It was a nasty, nasty disease that would eventually kill you. You died a very long, kind of a long, slow death. Fortunately, it wasn't that painful because, and that, and that was one of the problems, by the way. It, you, you, you basically were, you know, you, your nerves died, essentially. And so people would often injure themselves because they, they could feel no pain. And so maybe during the night, a rat might come and eat your finger off, and, and you wouldn't even know it. You'd, you'd wake up and, oh, something ate my finger. Or you, you, might, you, you, might, you might be trying to do some work as a leper, and you, you end up destroying your body in the process because you, you weren't feeling any pain. I mean, they, they, could, they could put their hand right through a nail, and they, and they wouldn't even know it unless they... Oh, hey, I'm bleeding. In fact, there was, I was reading about one medical doctor who, when he was in India, he, he saw a boy, that actually happened to him. Uh, the, the boy put his hand right through a nail and he didn't even know it. He had to tell him because he saw the blood dripping from his hand. But that's, that's what happens to a leper. So they were outcasts of society. So you need to understand that when Jesus comes to this man and, 
and, and he actually touches him, which was not normal because most people thought, you know, it was contagious, and, and it was, by the way. Uh, and so, so people wouldn't want to touch a leper lest they think themselves get that leprosy. But Jesus, you know, he, he's God, he's king, he doesn't care about that, and he actually comes and, and touches this man. Look, look what happens here in Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, Matthew, in, in verse 4, there's making mention of what, what was supposed to happen in the Old Testament. All right? So you have to go back to the Old Testament to know what, what was it that they were supposed to do. They, they were supposed to go see a priest. They were supposed to make an offering. Okay? So Matthew's alluding here to, to the instructions that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, if you have one of those Bibles that has cross-references, you'll You'll, you should hopefully notice a cross-reference there, and you can read that later. But there are four things about this particular leper that stand out to us. Number one, he came to Jesus with confidence. He came to Jesus with confidence. You'll see that on the screen there. Somehow, this leper, this man, knew that Jesus was not afraid of him. Somehow this man knew that Jesus would not be ashamed to associate with a leper, although basically everybody else in society was. Somehow he, he had the confidence to come to Jesus. The man did not shout unclean as was typical of that day and that time period. That's what lepers were supposed to do. It would have been considered very rude to not yell unclean. Uh, and, and often people would throw rocks and make, make fun of those who were lepers. But the man approaches Jesus directly here. You notice that? Just, just comes right into the crowd. <laughs> There's lots of other people there, but he comes in, talk, talks directly to Jesus, and he does it without hesitation. He must have known something about Jesus. But number two, the man came to Jesus with reverence. Did you notice there in verse 2, notice what it says in verse 2, that the man actually knelt before Jesus? He, just, he didn't just come in barging in there, but he kneels before Jesus. And the word itself there, kneeling, that the word that he knelt before Jesus, has the idea of he actually worshipped Jesus. It's not just, you know, maybe the kind of kneeling that you might do for a king. An earthly king, that is. No, this is, this is a kneeling. Okay, this is someone who is worthy of worship. That's, that's the idea of that word, knelt. Number three, the leper came to Jesus with humility. He came with great expectation, but he, he was not demanding his right to be healed. Did you notice that? He, if you will. He's not saying, hey you, heal me. No, he's not doing that. If you will, I, I know you can heal me. I know you can do it. Would you, please? And number four, the leper came with faith. 
Because he says, you can make me clean. You can do this. He, he has faith that Jesus is the man who is able to do this. The leper is coming with confidence because he believed Jesus was compassionate. He comes with reverence because he believed Jesus was God, I think. He comes with humility because he believed Jesus was sovereign. He, he's reigning supreme over all of his creation. And he comes with faith because he believed Jesus has the power to heal him. Well, let me ask you, how, how did that man know all that? Did he hear Jesus preaching? I, I don't know. Did he hear from somebody else? He certainly had incredible faith, didn't he? We'll talk more about that in a moment. There are some truths that we can learn from this little passage here. So we're going to look at each of these miracles separately, and then I'm going to just uh, talk about some truths that we can learn from this. Number one, what, what truth can we learn from this passage? Number one, Jesus is filled with compassion for the unfortunate. Very unfortunate that this man had leprosy, but nevertheless, God used this in this man's life, in that community, and, and continues to use it today. His actions here clearly show his concern and care for this man, doesn't it? In this particular encounter, we see Jesus had a, a great concern for people. And uh, Jesus is kind of going beyond the bounds of, of the culture of his day. It was, it was not the norm of his day to touch a leper. But Jesus does. And one of the lessons we can learn is that God will right all barriers between peoples. He's going to vindicate those who are downtrodden. Jesus is constantly doing this, isn't he? This is not an exception to the rule here. This is pretty much the norm of Jesus' life and ministry. He's going out of his way to minister to the downtrodden, to the outcast, to the unfortunate. And that's the way God is. And we can be thankful for that. I can, I'm thankful for that. Every one of us are unfortunate. In ways, we're outcast. And if you're a Christian, well, the, the Bible says you're a peculiar people. And so we can be thankful for the compassion which we do not deserve from a loving God. Number two, number two true faith does not demand. True faith does not demand. Rather, it surrenders to God's will. Is willing to say, whatever God's will is, that is what I will believe, and that's what I will accept. But too often, we, we, don't, we don't pray like this man was doing here. We, we try to command God to fulfill our request. It's almost like we think it's, it's our right for, for God to meet our needs and our wants. No, it's not. <laughs> we can't command God to do anything. And we certainly shouldn't even pray that way. We should instead bow to King Jesus, who will always do what is best for God's glory and for our good. He's always going to do what's best. But do you believe that? If you believe that, then you'll pray appropriately. But if you don't believe in a God who is, number one, sovereign, and who is, who is always going to do what's best for His honor and glory and for your good, then, well, then... Your, your bad theology will show up in your methodology, which is your prayers. And so you'll, you'll try to command God, and uh, you'll, 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 you'll fall prey to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of our day. 
which says, you know, just, just have enough faith, and, and uh, God's pretty much a vending machine, and you can make him do whatever you want. That's not a sovereign God. That's not an accurate God. Number three, Jesus fulfills the law. In one sense, we see Jesus is faithful to the law, which the, the Jews called the Torah. We see he's faithful to that. Uh, he, he actually tells the leper to go and do what the Old Testament says. He tells that leper, you need to fulfill the law. You need to go and see the priest. You need to, to, uh, to, to perform the sacrifice. Because that's what a Jew was supposed to do if, if they were healed of, of some sort of disease like this. And so they had to get permission from the priest to say that the, the, the priest was to proclaim him clean. And he was to do these, these purity rites so he could enter back into society. So Jesus tells him, hey, fulfill the law. Do what it says. So in one sense, Jesus fulfilled the law. But at the same time, Jesus ignored the, the instruction at that time. The, 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 the typical thing was not to touch a leper. But Jesus did. He shows compassion, love to this man and, and touched the leper. The touch never made Jesus unclean. One of the reasons they were never to touch a leper is because they believed, well, then they, they themselves would no, longer be un, would no longer be clean. Therefore, they would not be right with God. They couldn't go and make sacrifices. It was normal for, a, for an Israelite to, to always come before God as clean. That's, that was the normal thing to do. And so they would have to have these, they would do these things to show that they were clean. And so you, you touch a dead body or someone who, who, who had some disease or something like that, then, then you were made unclean. But Jesus touches him, but Jesus was never made unclean. It shows, again, that he is, he's king, he's Messiah, he is God. So Jesus healed a leper there, but we also see in the next few verses here that Jesus heals a Gentile. He heals a Gentile, which, of course, if you, if you understand the, the thinking of, of someone who's living in Israel, of a Jew, whoa, a Gentile, they didn't like Gentiles, did they? They called them dogs. Dogs weren't pets. They didn't like the Gentiles, particularly one who was a Roman. Wow, that's even worse. But look what Jesus does with this Roman Gentile. In verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion, this, this commander, Roman commander over a hundred Roman soldiers. That's what a centurion was. It says, he came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So we see that Jesus heals the servant of this Roman Gentile, who I'm assuming the servant was also a Gentile. There are some truths we can learn from this passage as well. What are they? Number one, again, we see God is concerned with the despised and rejected. Even even God's own people despised and rejected Gentiles. And, And you say, well, what is a Gentile? You understand a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. Right? Basically, that's, that's all of us. <laughs> so, if you weren't an Israelite, then you were a Gentile, and they were despised and rejected. You can understand the Jews were quite proud of their, their heritage, their place in the world, so to speak. They were not humble about it, that's for sure. And so the people, uh, these people ignored by, by the Jews and by much of mainstream society here in Israel constituted Jesus' special mission. He's he's constantly ministering to this type of people. He wanted to show God's love to them. So we understand something of God's mission, God's heart in these stories. God is concerned for those who are despised and rejected. Again, I'm, I'm very thankful for this because I am part of that despised and rejected. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve uh, eternal life. It's something that's unmerited. It's it's undeserved. I haven't done anything to deserve it. So praise God that he is concerned for someone like me and for you. Number two, faith does not control God's healing. Okay, That is not what's controlling God's healing here. But it does allow the individual to experience God's healing in a very special way. Now, it would be a mistake to assume that the man's faith was the cause of the servant's healing. Instead, what we need to see here is a gracious God who is the true cause of all healing. Okay? Too, too often, people are too man-centered in their theology. And they think they, you know, it's, it's, it's what they do. It's who they are that's going to that's gonna manipulate God to do what they want. Now, God is gracious here. He's doing as he wishes. He didn't have to heal this person, even though the centurion had great faith. But God chose to anyway. So we can see that Jesus honored the man's faith. But the man's faith is is not the important thing here. It's a gracious God that is what we need to focus on. Number three, God's mission has always included Gentiles. It's always been that way. Okay? Let's not forget this. Even in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant shows us it's always been this way. God is interested in Gentiles. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, it's it's through you and your race that I am going to bless all peoples of the earth. And he's primarily done that through, of course, Jesus Christ, who himself was a Jew, an Israelite. Now, we saw this truth in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. Remember, I hope you remember Matthew chapter 1, <laughs> long ago, uh, where 
there are several Gentiles and, and women included in Jesus' genealogy, which was not normal for a Jewish genealogy. Several Gentiles mentioned there. For, for example, you have uh, Rahab, Gentile. Ruth, the Moabite. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then, then a few other uh, mentioned there as well. And we saw this truth when the wise men came to worship Jesus. These wise men were not Jews. The Jews had pretty much ignored or openly rejected Christ, like King Herod. Uh, but most of them were just apathetic and were, didn't really care. Didn't, Christmas came and went, and they missed it. Uh, but, but these wise men came long distances. These Gentile wise men, probably from you know, the region of Babylon to Persia, somewhere over there in the east, coming along these long distances to worship Jesus. This truth is going to come into full fruition in the Great Commission. Remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which is what? We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all peoples of the earth. Right? That's the Great Commission. So God's plan from the Abrahamic covenant was for his chosen people to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. Not, not just their nation, but all of them. So these are some truths we can learn from this passage. Let's move on to the next one. So we see Jesus continuing to minister to these downtrodden, outcast people. Uh, we, we've seen him already minister to a leper. We've seen him minister now to, to a Gentile. And now we see that Jesus heals a woman. Now, sadly, we need to understand something about the society of Jesus' day. The culture that Jesus lived in, you have to understand, women were property. They're just property. And men could do with the woman however he want, pretty much. If you, uh, some of them would even kill them if you wanted to. You'd just kill the woman if they wanted to, because they were considered property. They weren't respected like they should have been. But we see Jesus here taking care of this woman, who, by the way, was actually Peter's mother-in-law. And so let's look what the passage says here in verse 14. Verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is a quote. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. <clears throat> now, we, we see there in verse 17, this uh, Old Testament quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4. Now, why does Matthew actually quote verse 4 from the prophet? Well, the verse Matthew cites, you need to understand the context. Context is king here, right? Context is so important. What's the context? Well, chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah is coming in the midst of a section which we know as the suffering servant section. The suffering servant section. It's all about a prophecy looking forward to the suffering servant. Who's the suffering servant? That's Jesus Christ. That prophecy was given hundreds of years before Christ ever came to this earth. And, of course, he fulfilled it, literally. And 
Matthew knows that Isaiah chapter 53 is about Christ suffering for sin. He knows that. He knows the Old Testament. And he's making the point here that Jesus' healing of our sicknesses is evidence of a far more important healing of our sins. I mean, after all, what did Jesus say? You, you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. What does it profit you? <laughs> it doesn't. And, and, and so Scripture continually shows us the spiritual, the eternal, is far more important than the temporal or the physical. And of course, that's one of the points Matthew's making here. So these stories are, are, uh, are actually, if you will, I- implying and, and looking to something greater than just the physical. The he- just the, the healing of, of some sickness, like a fever, for example, here, is, is alluding to the healing of sin. Now, we may miss seeing this truth here in chapter 8, but, but so you don't miss the point here, I want you to see it in the next chapter. Because in the next chapter, it's, it, it, the, it, it becomes more clear, okay? All right, so, so look at chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9. Now, I want you to see what Jesus says to this paralyzed man, because this is, this is crystal clear. It's not so crystal clear in chapter 8, but in chapter 9 it is. And uh, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Notice Jesus didn't say anything about the man's uh, you know, paralyzed legs and limbs. Doesn't say that, does he? What does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty clear. Jesus cares more about our sin than our physical problems. And that's one of the points I I think Matthew's trying to make here by quoting from the suffering servant section of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 53, verse 4. Each of these stories we've looked at here, and we're going to look at, sickness is used as an illustration of sin. Even leprosy itself in the Bible is used as an illustration of sin. Now we might call the disease sin sickness. Jesus' healing of those who are physically sick becomes an outward manifestation or a demonstration, if you will, of Jesus' authority over sin. But it's also a showing that Jesus not only has, a, has authority over physical sickness, not only authority over sin, but it shows He can ultimately deal with sin by forgiving it. Jesus has that great power to do so. So what are some truths that are taught in this passage? Number one, Jesus is Lord of all. 
He is Lord of all. He has the authority, as we've seen here, to cast out demons just by speaking the word. He can get rid of those demons. They're nothing to him. Now, originally, he created them as angels, and then they sinned, and then they became a demon after they sinned against God. But Jesus continues to have authority over them, even though now they're, they're, they're evil angels, if you will. We also see that Jesus has power to heal with a touch. He doesn't even have to say anything. He can just, he can just touch people and they're healed. The contrast with first century magicians and the exorcist of, of that particular day is just huge. There's huge contrast. Jesus doesn't need some elaborate incantation. He doesn't have to speak for a long time in, in some language that nobody knows. <laughs> No, he just speaks the everyday language that people understand. He says short little sentences, and people are immediately healed. He doesn't have to go through some lengthy oath to minister to people's needs. And that's because Jesus' power is internal. His power is internal. He doesn't have to call upon some external God or some external authority or power to, to do what he wants. No, it's, it's within him. That's where this power is coming from. So his power, if you will, is inherent in his very being, it, which means he's able to cure everyone that is brought to him. If he wants to do it, he can do it, because the power is within him. Jesus is Lord of all. Number two, we should be looking ahead to Jesus' greater healing work. Don't just focus on the physical, the temporal, but look to what is eternal. One commentator said this, Disease is not the true enemy to be overcome. That enemy is sin. For the fallen world produced by sin lies ultimately behind the suffering and sickness of this age. My friends, do you realize all the problems that you have and this world has is a result of sin? God did not create it this way. You remember how God created it? Read Genesis 1 and 2. God said it was very good. It was very good in the beginning. It was perfect. There was no death. There was no suffering or sickness in the beginning. But then chapter 3 comes. Genesis chapter 3. It all changes, doesn't it? Adam and Eve sin, and thus the fall changes this earth and now the earth is cursed and even creation itself is groaning for a day when christ will come and destroy everything and make it all new again and perfect so we 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 get a little glimpse of the of the day when everything will be created new and perfect again it's coming it's coming number three faith does not create healing god does God creates healing. Yes, faith was central in the first two healings we looked at. Did you notice that? That was one of the things that was similar about the first two healings. Faith was central. But it's not central in the third one here. Peter's um, mother-in-law is is almost like a non-event. The Bible doesn't really say much about her, does it? Her faith is not mentioned. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But but it's not mentioned in Scripture. It's obviously not important. 
We see, though, a God who is sovereign over all, and, and He is deciding what is best in each one of these instances. So whether we're healed or not, guess what? God alone is sovereign, not our faith. You are not sovereign. You do not reign supreme over your life, your job, or your family. Nothing. God is sovereign. And so when we're not healed physically, God is doing what is best for us, okay? So, my my friends, realize this. You You can have all the faith in the world, but that doesn't mean you're going to be healed of some problem or sickness or disease. Do you think the Apostle Paul had faith? Of course he did. And the Bible says in Corinthians, Paul prayed three times that whatever that thorn in the flesh was, it would be removed. And God says, no, my, my answer is no, Paul. I'm going to answer your prayer by saying no. You get to keep the thorn in the flesh, and I'm going to show myself strong in your weakness. You, you, you have a tendency to pride, Paul. And so I'm going to humble you. I'm, I want to keep you humble so you're usable for my service. So God doesn't always answer prayer with a yes. Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. So when we're not healed physically, remember, God is doing what is best for us. Yes, by all means, have faith. Believe in a God who can heal you. But when God says no, don't give up on God. Don't reject Him. Don't get bitter. His refusal to heal us physically can become the means of healing for us spiritually. Sometimes God uses our physical problems to show himself strong, to to work in us, to accomplish his purposes in us. So God's healing presence is always involved in these issues. There's four, well, let me just say this. Since these these things are pointing to sin and the, the, the greater spiritual problem that all of us have, everyone in this world has a sin problem, Let's talk about four lessons we can learn about sin, okay? Four lessons we can learn about sin. Number one, we are spiritually sick. We are spiritually sick. Even worse than that, the Bible says we're dying because of sin. The Bible, in fact, says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. We, we earn death, particularly eternal death, as a result of our sin. And so you need to... Let's think about lepers for a moment here. Lepers were considered as good as dead. Okay, If you lived in Jesus' time period and you contracted leprosy somehow, you were considered dead. You were an outcast. You had to go live in the leper colony. The time would come when you would die. It's going to happen. The centurion servant was dying, the Bible says. And Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Many, many people died as a result of fever. Very common at that time. So, uh, many have said that uh, the fever was the single greatest cause of death during Jesus' day. The point is that we're all perishing in sin. There's no human remedy that's going to save us. There's nothing, you you can't go see a doctor and say, hey doctor, uh, I'm a sinner, would you please help me? Oh, okay, here, let me write a, pres- uh, write a prescription out for you, okay? Go, go to the pharmacy, and the pharmacy is going to give you a pill for your sin, right? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> of course not. You say, Scott, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it is, because it can't happen. There is nothing on this earth 
that is, you, can be prescribed to you for your sin. According to the Bible, our problem is worse than being merely sick. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians that we are actually dead already and we're not able to do anything to help ourselves. So you, you're in the casket already, buddy. Okay, Every one of us, we're in the casket, spiritually speaking. You're dead, right? I mean, you can go and stuff all the, you know, the pills and the tablets and formulas in a dead person's mouth, but it, nothing's going to happen, right? You can inject stuff into the, their veins as they're laying in the casket, but you're not going to revive them. And spiritually speaking, the Bible says that's the way we are. We're dead. We're in the casket. We need a spiritual resurrection. And in fact, look what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead. Notice, what's the tense of that verb? It's past tense. Now, why is it past tense? Because, well, who's Paul talking to? What's the context? Who are the recipients? The The recipients are a church, particularly the church of Ephesus. So, Paul's talking to believers. These are believers in Christ. They've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's why Paul's saying, you were dead. That is, before you became a Christian, this is what you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Again, past tense. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. (laughs) But I love the next verse, and I highlighted it for you. I put the next two words in bold, because this is good news. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, here's the resurrection part, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's the gospel. So my friend, do you realize your condition is desperate? Every one of us has a desperate condition that needs a remedy. It needs to be cured. And if you do nothing about it, it will kill you and you will die in your trespasses and sins and you will forever live in the lake of fire. So each one of us has this deadly disease, and without God, we're, we're all perishing eternally. And so thankfully, there's a cure. There is a cure, and that's point number two. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And my friends, Jesus is that Savior, and this is probably a reason why Matthew summarizes the account of the first three healings by, by ending with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. The passage on the suffering servant, who of course is Christ. And that verse expresses a link between the healing of disease and the healing of sin sickness. There's a link. Because where does all sickness come from? Sickness is a result of sin. All of our problems are a result of sin. But it's also coming from a passage, remember, that's prophesying about this coming messianic Savior, who of course is Jesus. 
Jesus is that Savior. He has the authority to heal and to forgive sin. Number three, faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. We see the need for faith in two of these three stories today. Let me ask you, did the leper have faith? Of course he did. The leper had faith. He, he comes and does the, the culturally unacceptable thing and comes boldly, although reverently and humbly before Christ. It was a remarkable faith. When the leper talked to Jesus, he did not say, if you can heal me. No, he says, if you will. If you will. The point is he believed that Jesus could heal him. He firmly believed Jesus could do it. The the issue, it wasn't ability. The issue was, well, is Jesus going to decide to do it? He's essentially asking for permission. He knows Jesus can do it. So the only question was whether Jesus would actually choose to heal him. As for the Roman centurion, of course Jesus recognizes his exceptional faith. And Jesus even praised this Roman centurion for his faith. He understood that Jesus spoke with the authority and the power of God. Therefore, it was not even necessary that Jesus enter his house to heal his servant. He knew that Jesus could do it even from a distance. He didn't even have to come and touch him. You just say the word. You have the power. You have the authority. Would you please? So he believed Jesus could heal by a word and from a distance. And this is what you need to do. If you are to be saved from sin, you and I need to do the same thing. We need to recognize, number one, that our condition is desperate. We don't match up to the, to the standards of a holy God. We've all, in fact, Romans says we've all fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us have broken every one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus, remember, summed up the Ten Commandments with two He says, love God with all and love other people as you love yourself. Have you kept those commands? And the answer is no. None of us have always loved other people as we love ourselves. None of us have loved God with all. We've broken all ten commandments. We've we've lied. We've stolen. We've committed adultery. We covet and we do other things as well. So we've broken all the commands and therefore we stand guilty before a holy God. So... We need a Savior. The Bible calls us to come to God by faith. Justification comes by faith alone. It's not by our works. My friends, do you realize you cannot be saved by your works? There there is no work that you can do to save yourself. So we have this this, this desperate condition. We, We see the Bible says Jesus is the physician who alone can save us. And so we must have faith in Him and, and only in Him. And Jesus must be the object of that faith. Okay? So listen closely, my friends. The object of the faith is, is very important. I've heard people say, you know, just have faith. No, that's not enough. I mean, if your faith is in a person, you're hopeless. <laughs> if your faith is in your good works, you're in trouble. If your faith is in anything other than Jesus Christ, and he must be the only object, then you're without hope. Must be in Jesus. My question is, do you have this faith? 
Faith's the channel by which salvation comes to us. Faith is not a good work. You can't take credit for it. In fact, the Bible says faith is a work that God does in you. You can't even take credit for the faith part of it. Faith is still something we must do, and it is absolutely necessary. It is essential. You cannot come to God without it. You cannot please Him without faith, Hebrews 11 says. So we must believe, we must trust. So look, what, look what it says here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is nothing, my friends, you can do to save yourself. If you did, then you could boast, but you can't. Because it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Number four. Here's the last lesson we can learn about sin. Is that the stakes are life or death. The stakes are life or death. Jesus even alludes to that here in our passage. And so... This is the, the, well, let me put it this way. This is the most important matter that you will ever have to consider in your life. And by the way, you must consider it in this life, because in the next one, it's all done. Okay? The matters of life and death must be settled now, because once you're dead, it's over, my friend. What you settle now, it will be stuck for all eternity. If you die without Christ, you spend eternity in the lake of fire. If you die in Christ, a Christian, a true believer, a genuine believer, then the Bible says you're in Christ, therefore you're a Christian, therefore you spend eternity in heaven. You have eternal life. And it's never going to perish. And my friend, do you realize the stakes don't get any higher than this? There is no decision you can make in this life that is more important than this. Okay, You say, why, am I, why are you talking about this? You're, you're talking to a church congregation. That's because I don't believe everyone here is a believer. I think there's at least one person sitting here who is an unbeliever, and if you fell out of your chair with a heart attack right now, you'd spend eternity in hell. And so the most loving thing I can do for you is to tell you of the danger. And what is the solution? So Jesus described here in our passage, in Matthew chapter 8, spiritual death as being thrown outside into the darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why are people in darkness and why are they weeping and gnashing their teeth? Do people who are filled with joy and happiness do that? When, when you're happy and everything's going good and you're feeling good and, man, you know... <laughs> Are you, are you grinding your teeth together? Are you crying? Okay, I know, I know some people cry when they're happy, okay? But that's not the point here, right? We're talking a place of loneliness, outer darkness. That's complete darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 8. That's where you go if you are without Christ. And my friends, you say, those are frightening words. Please don't scare me. I want to scare you. Jesus wants to scare you. It's the most loving thing we can do to warn someone of the flames, of the the, the eternal death. There's nothing more loving than that. So my friends, the Bible says that none of us are good. None of us are good. We're all bad. 
We're all, we're all sinners. And the only way you can get to heaven is with Christ's righteousness. Without that, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. So yes, Jesus is talking about hell. And, and I know some people, some people like to think there is no place called hell, but there is, my friends. Jesus talked about this place more than anybody. And he ought to know because he made the place. He knows what it's like. He created the place for Satan and the demons. He knows what it's like. It is a real place. Despite what, unfortunately, some pastors and authors and theologians like to say. It's a real place of torment that that one day is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, which is eternal. And so, it's a real place. It's eternal. It is not a place of, of uh, celebration where you can you know, have a party with friends. I've heard people say that. You will be utterly alone in total separation from everyone, everything, except your, your, your thoughts and your suffering. It is not a place where anyone should want to go. The torment, the Bible says, is eternal. It is forever. It is unrelenting. You will feel as if your whole body's on fire and it's never going to go away. And after one trillion years, you're going to think it's only begun. I have another trillion, and then after that, I have another trillion years, and then another trillion years, and it's never, ever going to end. So, my friend, I urge you come to Christ. Those of you who are believers, tell those who don't know Christ. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about this real place called hell. We don't have to go there. You you realize nobody has to go there unless they don't believe. Only those who don't believe go there. But all who believe in Christ, whose faith and trust is in Him and in Him alone, they they don't have to experience that. They get grace, which is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but we get to spend eternity with God in heaven. So, the good news is we can escape. But what we have to do is we have to forsake our sin. We have to stop loving our sin. We have to, we have to realize, okay, ooh, tough choice, okay? I love myself. I love, I love my sin and what it does to me. Okay, I can choose that. Or, or I can choose the greater pleasure... I can choose Christ, and I can choose heaven, and all the wonderful blessings that come with that. Ooh, tough choice. So there's your choice. You can choose yourself, or you can choose Christ. (laughs) My friends, the greater option is Christ, of course. How do you defeat sin? You defeat sin with superior pleasure. So my friends, you'll never come to Christ until you recognize that Christ is the superior pleasure. He is the greatest treasure. It doesn't get any better. Yes, sin is pleasurable for a season, but it doesn't last. And it never will. And ultimately leads you to destruction. So give it up. Please, give it up. Forsake your sin. Believe on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. May He be your greatest treasure.